0: Welcome everyone to another episode of the Let's Get Real podcast, the show that delves deep into the stories of adversity, resilience and transformation. This week, I'm joined by Beyond the Pitch founder, Phil Brown. Welcome to the show, Phil. Absolute pleasure, Mick. Thanks for having me on, mate. So... You're out in Los Angeles at the moment yep. uh, as a as a as a founder of Beyond <laughs> the Pitch Media Network, which which we'll discuss later. And you're yep. you're also uh you're also an adamant Manchester United fan, which is very close to my heart, as you know. So, how how did that all start for you, Phil? How did that come about? What gave you the the, the inspiration to sort of to leave Belfast at sort of a, a young age and 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 make your way over to the USA?
1: The Viet- well, see, growing up, my, um, I had family in America, so occasionally, and I mean occasionally, like maybe once or twice, growing up, um, you know, we didn't know we weren't we weren't blessed with a load of money, like, but occasionally we get out on holiday to America, and I love, to be honest, you know, it was just very different to Belfast. You know, I remember first time stepping foot in America and couldn't believe the size of everything. You know, the, the billboards, the cars, just the even the human diversity in the airport, like. You Know we are a very imaginative, you know, population. Certainly, growing up, we were, anyways, finally changing thankfully. but uh, it was just strange to see different cultures, different ethnicities. Um, it was nice, I liked it, mate. Uh, but uh, it was just very, very interesting, man. Um, for me, I was it, w- w- like, there's an old saying, if you haven't seen such riches, you can live a being poor. Once your mind gets expanded, the different realities, the different it, it was a blessing and a curse because. It was great to get experience of that, but then for the very first time in my life, I saw the way we were living from a different perspective, from a different lens. Because you when you grew up in something, you normalize it, you don't realise, you know, there's a contrast in experience. When I came to America, I saw, wait a minute, how we're living is not normal and then it started to affect me more. Um and it increased my desire to want to escape from it. Because um, you know, I I I suppose you could say this was an orthodox back then but i have a Protestant mother and a Catholic father and my father's from our my mom's from Cork road um so it's a bit different than how i was raised i but uh i sort of started there i applied for a green card got it um truly you know when you're young you don't think 10 10 years ahead you just think of the next couple of weeks i say i'll do this for a couple of years and then see what the crack is in and you end up getting stuck, you end up having kids, married, and life happens. Yeah. And and what age were you when you first experienced the USA back then, Phil? Uh well from a conscious experience I was, I was a kid, but really sixteen was whenever and you know at sixteen, you're at that formative stage where, you know, you're you're growing into yourself, you're starting to change from juvenile ways into more adult ways, you're you're maturing a bit. Yeah, you and know, you're, you're influenced by a lot of things around you—music, culture, and um, girls, of course. So when I come out to America and I would see these girls in America, I was like, <laughs> I, I was mad. Like you know, it was it was definitely an eye opener. You know, from being a spotty scrot back home to all of a sudden having an accent, I was like, oh, <laughs> <And> so <also, laughs> uh, it was great. You know, but um, it was um, now nah, it was just a. It's a it was an interesting experience, mate, because it, it, was, um, it was it it was was something where even, you, you, like, in order to be aware of anything, you need a contrast. And for the very first time, like, I was talking about the, the contrast and how I could see how we lived, where I see how we lo- lived through a different lens. But even I saw myself differently because for the very first time, I was different. You know, I was other. And my traits that I'd never even thought about all of a sudden stood out and I became conscious of things that you're not conscious of, you know, your accent, the words that you use, your your, your different automaticities and proclivities that are so different the Americans and your, you know, your, 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 your program mindedness and the way you think about things. And, and, and really, so it taught me a lot about myself and, and what I am and how, and how different I was and, and like how Belfast had shaped my, you know a lot of what i what i perceived in the world
0: yeah now you mentioned an interesting thing there um the the environment in which Mm -hmm. you grew up modes and shapes as we as we transition through life so you you obviously mentioned there you you grew up with a with a and a a mixed family or a mixed marriage if you want to call that how hard was that for you particularly during the period um, hanging back, I think you're around the same age as me. So that, that was sort of, you know, the head of the conflict and in, in uh-huh. Belfast.
1: So how, how was that for you as a young, as a young fellow growing up? It was interesting because, like we said, man, certain things are normalised, right? That you expected, you expected sectarianism, you expected to have to fight sometimes, you expected you were going to get bothered sometimes, and that was just came with the territory, like so. <laughs> I went to what would be described as predominantly Protestant schools in Bali and Primary School and think only High School, right? But all my social circle outside of school were Catholic lads, you know. I played for, for teams up in Shankill uh, and Andrews, and I played for teams up in Ardoyne. You know, most of my social life school was spent doing things that would be considered nice you know, yeah, and my views, I suppose, would be considered nationalist. I'm a socialist. I'm someone that believes in human rights, equality, love for all, self-determination. Uh, I don't get caught up in a lot of the pejorative terms they use back home um, that uh, you know if you, if you label people. For me, I, if that happens to coincide with nationalism, okay. But nationalism doesn't shape my views. What shapes my views is love, equality, respect. I don't like, I don't think a culture, if a culture is rooted in someone else's oppression, I don't think that culture deserves to be respected, nor should it be respected, nor should you demand to be respected. Respect is always earned, it's never given. And And I think if you've got triumphalist culture that's celebrating the death of somebody else or murdering someone else or whatever, then it's not inclusive by its very nature. And, and, and I know unionist culture, rightfully, gets singled out in this, but there's also some of this nationalist culture too, you know, with a lot of the music and all that there. Look, I, 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 I am truly totally on board, not like I, I love Irish music, but there has to be some intellectual honesty here about um, how we celebrate our culture. No question, unionism has a serious problem um, with a lot of the displays of its culture and what it actually says about them. Um, uh, and how and pernicious that is. So I think that um, that's sad because really what it says to me, Mike, is we're losing another young generation to mindless um, sectarianism when their potential is enormous. There, I mean, uh, there has to be more to life than getting up every day and hating tags or hating frauds. Like, there's just got to be more to do than that. You know, like at some point, where's your intellectual yearning to go to? other cultures, other countries, and learn about the world rather than, you know, this myopic nonsense. And, uh, when, and and now that I live here, like I say, and I see it from that lens, that perspective, I look at it, I just find it so unbelievably tragic because the potential of that place is enormous. Is, and the vast majority of people are amazing, but um, they're let down by their politicians. However, on a the, on, on the plus side, I do think with the demographic shift, Shift. You are seeing a change in the body politic, and I think that we will see that reflected in politics.
0: Yeah, f- fingers crossed, Phil, because obviously okay. the, the, the politics of division is is still rife right, um, over, yes, over, over here at the moment, and that, that's—I mean—that's a conversation for another day or a whole other or a,
1: or a whole other podcast. I, I just hear the dividing lines, Mike, because yeah. at the end of the day, you know vast majority of human beings want the same thing, right? We all want peace, prosperity, you know, a, little, a little bit of comfort. And see at the end of the day, when you look at politics, man, so I'll do this just really quick. Politics is is, is car sales, man, right? They appeal to your emotions, so you abandon logic, right? And anyone knows that anyone who does anything on, on emotion, abundance logic this is shown like there's even laws against this but buyers remorse when someone goes in and buys a car they a, a skilled salesman or woman will make sure that you identify with that particular item that you see your status improving you see uh, your, your physical attraction improving and your ego improving and people buy that and then when all that wears off and they go what have i done so you know you see this all the time you see politicians turn around to people say, oh well, we're going to deport all the immigrants, they're taking all your jobs. And they avert their gears away from the fact that they're passing legislation that deliberately is against their interests and the same people are asking to vote for them. But because they've had them hooked on an emotive issue, they avert their gears away. This is what politicians do. And it's really, really sad.
0: Yeah, I I I agree we totally filled and as I say, there's a there's still a large part of, of uh, manipulation, coercion and oh, skullduggery no. that's rife, um, particularly in our politics. I, I can't really comment on, on the on the American politics because I'm not as close to it or I don't follow it. Well, but do. This is why peace is a threat.
1: Yep. Because when you don't have people hating each other right, and they, don't, they aren't a band of logic and there's peace, this is why they always mm-hmm. refer back to they hate you. They're the biggest threat. Mm-hmm. Because what these politicians know, two things. One, if you're not gonna vote for me, you're gonna vote for me as a vote against the other side.
0: Yeah.
1: We either vote anyway. And if we can't turn around and drag this place back to the past where everything is based on hate and emotion and we're based we're we're evaluated on logic, people are gonna see through us and that's a problem.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I agree
1: totally with Phil. And
0: it's and it's and as I say, there's there's still serious problems um, when you scratch beneath the surface in, in our okay. local politics yeah. here. Um, it is a it is a <laughs> what's the best word I'm looking for it? It's it's a marriage built on a utopia that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's it's a wink and a nod relationship, um, yeah. and everyone knows that, um, which is very disappointing and disheartening. Yeah. I mean, I've I've two young girls. Um, I'm raised at the moment they're obviously Catholic they're, they're, they're 13 um, and they've got Protestant friends but they live in a they obviously live in a predominantly Catholic community um, mm-hmm. but because of rights-based issues now and equality and diversity and laws and regulations that have been passed um, their their whole adapted in the way that they look at things is, was completely different than me and you growing up um okay. co- because what what we experienced was completely the other end of a, of a uh, paradigm and what they see and witness which i'm i'm extremely thankful for yes um uh, don't get me wrong but as they start to move through life and and they start to experience you know the news and and, and the, the right to vote and how this all starts to work there's there's some warning signs for me obviously within that moving forward and myself and the partner can only wish that we raise them in a way that you know they they don't take that the wrong way and, and go down that whole pathway which we've just discussed in terms of the politics of division and how that how that progresses in people's minds.
1: Look Mike, the key here is an educational basis, right If you have an educational basis, a foundation that includes reason that includes intellectual honesty that includes emotional maturity so that if a truth offends you, you're not going to look for another one. You're going to turn around and say, do you know what, this as offensive as this truth is to me because I'm emotionally committed to a different point of view or a different perspective or, or alternative fact, if you want to call it that. Um, then I, but I still have to accept it. You know, when my wife died, my wife-to-be died, one of the things that offended me the most was atheists. Uh, I despised them with every sinew of my body because they were telling me what I was, you know, that my Stephanie, what I was, I was. high held this, this was incredibly comforting to me, that she was still in my presence, that she was still there, that she was still existing in a, in a, in a sphere where she could still be a part of her child's life, still be a part of my life. And she wasn't in pain. I, I I knew, like, obviously, for anyone not involved in grief and experiencing that emotion, you could see where it's wishful thinking. But for me, at the time, I needed it. And then I'm hearing these atheists saying I'm wrong, it's de- all this. I hated them until eventually I had to be honest with myself and say, look, I have to accept the hard sciences, right? Biology, evolution, that's a fact. However, when that increased in intellectual yearning for me to understand the universe, then I found so much more mystery and spirituality in the universe outside of organized religion see to me organized religion is theatrics it's performative nonsense right you know like uh, say 16 humans well i don't I, I still believe in uh I, I, something that's bigger than you and me but i don't believe that religion uh, in its current guys is the only way to get to uh spiritual to get spiritual nourishment to get freedom to get um, you know, I, I, I don't believe because I, I, I don't believe I think it's been a very nefarious and I think it's a constant game of one upmanship where we are we're more woke to our god's better than your God and then of course results in wars. So for me, when I looked at something like Buddhism, for example which was very spiritual, which was making claims about the universe 2,000 years ago that were ridiculed, but only 100 years ago through the discovery of quantum mechanics was proven to be true. Uh, you know, And you look at things like uh, meditation, which has a very, very, very clear, obvious benefit. Um, uh, it's, it, it says, do this and this will happen, do this and this will happen. That's why I like um, Buddhism. And I think when you look at consciousness in its form, it is very mysterious, and I think uh, it, it, it's hard to imagine that there's a there's a megal inside your brain. You know, this is this is yeah. this is not real. You know, it's, it's really interesting to me. Sorry, man. Yeah.
0: No, it's you. you mentioned um, obviously the passing of your of your soon-to-be wife. Was it was it was it faith that helped you manage out that process, or did you did you find
1: another way which which you could find comfort? Well, make if I'm honest, <clears throat> you know, um, let me take it back there and set the table for a bit. Back then, 2007, a lot happened. <clears throat> uh, I had just become a father for the first time in February of that year, um, which was the greatest day of my life. You know, I I'd had this child and my son, Aiden, who's now... Four, almost 15, uh, the, my whole work, right? Just everything to me, I just uh, I couldn't believe I was a father and I was fraught with doubt that I was capable of being a father to him and, and a, a good one, but anyway, I also bought my very first house, right, that year. I also opened my business that year. So I'd done a lot, I'd taken a lot of risks, and everything so far had come off. I was the happiest man in the world. I came home one day, uh, December four, two 2007, came home to put the Christmas tree up. Uh, I, I was with a woman that, and I'm not going to lie, my guy absolutely ate place. I, I loved her with everything, but I trusted her. She was amazing. She'd been better with me. She'd been over to Belfast a bunch of times. She loved it. Uh, she was an American, she was born here and raised in Vegas. Just a gorgeous human being. You know, just someone that if there's a right and wrong way of doing things, she'll take the right way, even if it's the hardest way. She just, That was just her nature. And I, I idolised her. I mean, she was my whole world. Uh, I came home to Sam before 2007, opened the door. <clears throat> um, I was actually out to work that morning about half nine. It was the day Celtic played AC Milan in the Champions League because I forgot to record it. And I had just left the house and I texted her, maybe not doing like less than a minute after leaving. There was a little bit of a rush and says, yeah, can you can take tape back, record that game. I never heard back from her. Um, uh, so didn't think much of it because I just thought, that she's farting about that she's going to leave anyway. But the gas electric fire was lit at the time because it was December. There was no fire on it but it were not really work she's going to leave shortly after me anyway um <clears throat> went to my meeting i had another meeting in la but it made it split second decision to not go to that meeting in la i don't still know why and went home opened the front door and she was dead and um, she was sitting on the seat right where i left her the phone was beside her which was never checked so she died the second i left the house um, my 10-month-old son was between her feet and um and of course, and I to this day will never know how he sat still for three and a half hours in that living room by himself. I mean, anyone who has a 10 month old that's crawling will know that's impossible, yeah. seconds, but he did. And uh, you know, of course, I saw her try to give her CPR and all that, it, it just devastated me, Mac. I, I just was not emotionally capable, or didn't have the tools to deal with it. I was on my own, my family's no more of the word. I was alone. Um, I was having serious mental health problems. I was crying nonstop. I had nothing. One of the things that really bothers me about it is I went to my doctor about five days after this and I said to him, I'm really struggling. And one of the things that I told him was, Look, TVs were going on and off in the house, which they were. I wasn't I. I wasn't going not want to witness that. There was other things that were happening. Uh, he turned around and he said, and he was, I can send you to get therapy, but if I do, there's a good chance they're going to take your child off you because they're going to think you're going crazy. So I, I was denied mental health treatment at a time when I so badly needed it. So what, what filled the void for that mental health problem was drugs. Yeah. Because... I was also dealing with, I had an old football injury, so I had to have a knee operation, but, the, but there was another problem, I had, had lost my kidney a couple of years before that, so now I could no longer get prescribed um, you know, anti-inflammatory uh, painkillers, so now I'm on the hard stuff. So you juxtapose all these problems um, and I'm getting prescribed hard narcotics at a time when I am can barely move, I'm in so much pain emotionally, all of a sudden I didn't feel too bad. And then there's the seed of addiction. So, now there's a lot of people out there who would like to put me in jail, in prison because I'm an addict, because they do that, who think that I failed morally somehow and I owe society something and I should go to prison for that. I didn't want to be an addict. I didn't ask to be. I, I love drugs My vast majority of my life. Um, it just happens. And then, I, and one of one of the things that did for me is it changed my view on drugs and drug addicts and people who, because I used to have a very pejorative view of them, and it wasn't nice. But then when I realised why people become addicts, the vast majority of people become addicts because they're self-medicated in pain. Simple as that. And they don't have an outlet for it. And we're living in an increasingly materialistic society that's telling us we're unhappy. We're unhappy. We need to buy more stuff to be happy, and it's just not possible to buy enough stuff to be happy. And uh, you know, we're increasingly commoditized. We're increasingly used as robots, and our our humanity is continuously being denied. And this is turning people. Uh, you know, pe- people are doing a job they hate for someone they don't like, and they're depressed. And of course, they take a, a substance to temporarily alleviate that suffering. Well, I did the same. So, um, well, my guy, I'll always be a, a, a vulnerable addict. You know, I, I I relapse on and off all the time. I'm not sitting here saying I'm am you know doing great. And you know, it's been ten years. It's not. You know, uh, it, 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 I, I I I am. I never use the word clean because to me it implies you're dirty. If you're taking a substance, and you're certainly not. implanted certainly not dirty. You're a human being taking a substance that's can how, how to help you, but it's a constant battle man. And
0: is, is, is that why you're such a, a, an, a an advocate for, for mental health? Because what you've experienced yourself?
1: 100%, because <clears throat> when you become familiar with the pain and suffering and the hopelessness of mental health, and when you're at your lowest ebb, you wouldn't wish it on anyone. And you know how people feel in that, in that position and how vulnerable they are. And how it's not a massive stretch to go from there to convincing yourself that, do you know what, everyone is bad. See, people think, oh, people who take their life for selfish, but most people who do it are doing it because they think that those who they leave behind would be better off without them. And it's, it's so it's actually an unbelievably selfless act all, most of the time. And so, and for people to take their own lives, the amount of pain they have to be in is—it's it's, it's hard to describe. If you've never been there, so, um, so yes, I'm a massive advocate for it, uh, because I was humbled by it myself, and still humbled by it. I mean, and will forever be battling this, and I have nothing but love and empathy for anyone who goes through it. Yeah, and hard.
0: How did you find the strength, Phil? Because obviously you mentioned—I mean—experience ex- mm-hmm. ex- that scene. I can't even—I can't even imagine that. Personally, I can't even imagine it, um, yeah. and I can start to not not understand or, or relate. Because I think they're the wrong words. But I, I can only look upon, ex- you know, seeing that scene at close quarters myself, and and how I would feel about that. And I, and I think most men who listen to this podcast are, are would experience that situation would, would probably find themselves in the same boat self-medicating trying to deal with grief the birth of a, of a, of a child it's 10 months and, and starting a new job how did how did you take all that and and move yourself forward from you know a real real low point and 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 then depths how did you how did you get out of that how did you move forward because what i can imagine was no support mechanism around you
1: oh. Yes, that's true. A um, couple of things, Mike. First of all, um, <clears throat> the the first reason really was my son. Right? Yeah. Because all of a sudden he became my entire world. And I remember the day this happened. And I took him into the, the toilet, the bathroom, the house. I was crying my eyes out and I held him in the air. And I said, son, I'll promise I'll never let you down. I don't know if I've kept that promise, Mike. I've done my best, but the impact to my physical health after that, because of my mental health, started to have a huge impact too. All of a sudden, my body started to fall apart. Um, my, Like I said, I lost my kidney. I, and then I, I ended up having five knee operations. My gallbladder burst. Uh, I had to have rods and screws drilled into my spine to hold it together. I was strangled one night, my hyoid bone snapped in my throat. I broke my wrists, broke my collarbone. Um, I have other issues going on internally. Um, so dealing with excruciating physical pain on top of that which meant I couldn't get off the painkillers because my, I, I I was in a lot of physical pain too and my and like I said, like uh constantly sick um was difficult. But I did something that I've been criticized for quite a bit and I understand it like on only outside if you're not if you're, because when you're looking at something from an external perspective, you control all the variables and you think you know how it would feel in that situation, but you don't and I I met another girl relatively quickly. <clears throat> and I did that because, and I'll be brutally honest, I was petrified of being alone. Yeah. Right? I was, you know, I didn't have my family here, Mike. You know, when I closed the door at night from work, I was alone. Right? I was sitting with this little 10-month-old baby and I had no mental health treatment. I was in excruciating physical and mental pain. All I could do was cry. Yeah. Just I just and and in in a weird way I felt trapped by my son because I wanted to kill myself, but I couldn't because of him. And there's times where I was like, if I didn't have you, I could end this right now. And I would. And I feel it's painful for me that I can't because I won't leave you. But um then another girl came along and it's massive rebound. Right. And I let her move in. Relatively quick, and people on the outside were like, "Fuck, you're a piece of shit. You're a scumbag. you were cheating on her." I would say I was never doing. right? It was just because I was alone. Dealing with something that was excruciating that I didn't know how to deal with, with none of my family around me. I, I and I found somebody that could help me, and yeah. people ordered me for it, and some people never spoke to me again, and I, I I, don't hold it against them, I understand, but I just would like for them to understand that unless you're in that situation, you don't know, and you know, maybe it's a moral feeling on my part, maybe it's an emotional feeling on my part, maybe I should have been better and stronger and not done that, you know, maybe maybe there's something wrong with me that, that, um, that, that I don't have the strength to be able to deal with this, but that was I doubted the best way I could, and um, people are entitled to look back on it and say I was right or wrong. That's up to them. And I, I I I I can accept criticism, I, and I, I get that, but I'm not perfect. Um, but I, 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 that's what I did then. Well,
0: this was the first time I've I've heard this. Well, obviously, and I, I mean, it's it's made me a bit, a bit emotional. It's it's. it's uh... I think it's it's quite profound. Some, some of the, the words and, and the experiences and and how you've how you've managed that. Um, I mean, I I hold my hands up, um, and I I don't pass judgment on anybody because um, people have a lot of things going on in their life, which a lot of people are not aware of, or they don't want to become aware of. They're happy to sit in the sidelines and and have opinions and pass judgments, and that's that's life. people
1: well, that's part of life, Mac. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but you know you articulating that situation and how you were dealing with that. I mean for me personally, I can see why you rebounded. I can see that you wanted to look after your your both your mental and physical health, but you also wanted to look after and care for the most important person in your life, which was your
1: son. The um so if, was I wanted someone to be there in case I died and he yeah. was open. So I was thinking, if I die, I want someone to be here so that he's not left alone. Yeah. Sitting crying on his cot for a couple of days before someone works it out. Like you, you, you don't like when you're mentally You know, you you don't realize like when you're in it that i mentally ill. Mark, and and like the things that you and and, and like. You think to yourself at the time on the inside that nobody really notices but they uh, don't realise like how, how it affects everything that you do.
0: Yeah. It's it's uh that's a really hard situation, Phil. Um to actually even try to try to understand. I mean I can't I am finding it difficult to even you know, how can I put myself in this man's shoes? How how would I feel in that situation? I, I, honestly, hand, hands and heart. Um, and I'm, I'm and I'll be completely transparent with you. I actually don't know how you did it. Um, well,
1: most of us don't know, mate. You just you find yourself yeah. in a situation with circumstances you can't change, and your choices die yeah. or do your best. And look, I just did my best. You know, uh, listen. I've I'll, I'll be cleaning up the mess that I made during that time for years. So it's just it's just something I have to deal with. And. You know, it's just life. And um to praise if you find yourself next to me, much what, I uh, whether you find it's trying to deal with it or not, which you probably would, I'm sure you would. The, the residual pain that you're left with and you know, it, it's hard for me because now I have a child that's sitting looking at me going, you know, I for a single birthday with my mom. I never got to say. Her, single, I have no memory of blowing out a candle with her. I have no memory of opening a Christmas present with her. It didn't happen. Yeah. She never got to see me take my first steps. She never got to hear me say her name. I never got to hear. In in very, that's very painful for me to look at my kid, who's loads of questions about his mom. and and I like we can't even get through a video of her for 15 seconds It just that that's how raw the pain still is
0: yeah yeah
1: and, uh, when i try to bury it i see it in my son i see it in his eyes and the tragedy just continues because he got robbed the most really of this and um you know as painful as it is for me i have answered questions he will never have and and so it's a bad situation man. and you know, it just its some place like people mean so much more than anything material, you know? And so it's just hard. Man, you take, deep, there's loads of people going through stuff and I, I'm lucky like you have your own story and it's all relative. It all depends on the pain that it causes you and how it, imp- it impacts your life. It doesn't matter what the severity of the event, what matters is how does it affect you and how does it affect your daily life? If, Something as simple as losing your wallet produces as much pain for you as what I went through. Then it's as relative, because it really just depends on its impact on you, not the severity of the event. And and that's why we shouldn't judge people, you know, um, about that's it. You know, you're grieving over your dog. Well, it doesn't matter. It matters how it affects people. That's not, it's not It doesn't matter what is the severity of the event. And, and so it's just about have an empathy and love for other people, and start looking through a cynical lens to judge others. Because most of us are just doing the best we can. Right?
0: Yeah, I agree with you, there, Phil. So you you mentioned there two thousand and seven, and you started the new job, and obviously all the, mm. all that, that pain you'd went through. Is, is this when when your podcast started to take shape? Was it was was this when Talk Sports started to come around? Tell tell me about that journey. You no, know, so
1: basically about <sighs> two thousand. About 2009, 10. <clears throat> um, so it was about a year and a half after I created the podcast. And to be honest, it was right whenever podcasts were just starting to, you know, to be a thing and to be a fad. So it wasn't massive back in, in terms of like it is now where everyone has a podcast. Um, and we just said, Look, let's just have a, a the, the, the guy that I was doing it with at the time. Um, uh, he, uh, we, we started this as a creative outlet for what we were doing. It was just something that we enjoyed. It wasn't anything we did with any desire to, you know what, we're going to use this to achieve fame or notoriety. or money. Like People who start podcasts do, who do that or just have no idea that that's never going to happen. It's like, probably one of the worst platforms you ever want to use to achieve fame and notoriety because most people listen to podcasts. Or people our age walking their dogs or at the gym? It's not young kids, so, yeah. How creepy they yeah. So, anyway, um, so, so we did, we started to create out that, and then you know, about a bit about of Belfast blag, and I spoofed my way. We, better always emailing football clubs, Man United, Juventus, whatever, and and just saying, Here, listen, we're a massive radio show in Los Angeles. I five <laughs> listeners. <laughs> and and most of them didn't reply, but maybe if I sent out 20 emails and got one reply, that's all I needed, yeah. you know? And the first big interview, I suppose, that I got was Henrik Larson And uh, sent so it off to his club, I think it was a Helsingborg or something to him. And uh, I'll never forget, it. Santa, I got up the next day, I looked up my phone in bed. And I'll be honest, Mick, it was the first time I experienced real joy in a couple of years. I, could, I opened that email and it says, it from a press director at the club he was at the time, saying, Henrik says, yes, he'll do it. Here's his phone number, give him a ring. Now, I must have read that email a thousand times and said to myself, did this guy just send me Henrik Larson's phone number? And I texted Henrik Larson and he texted me back, and I off my channel, i can't believe it it was just it's taking a stab at a different world that i didn't think i could ever do yeah uh, the audio quality of the interview was absolutely atrocious right but that's okay you know because you need to make mistakes Yeah. so but what it helped do is help build this momentum so we and confidence and we started reaching out to everyone and and like i couldn't believe it like we were getting unbelievable interviews um, with, with the highest people in the game, we were exploiting the fact that we were in LA because people we knew the football, European football, wanted it into the American market. They didn't really know how to do it at the time. Now it's saturated, now they, they don't meet people like me. But um, but back then they were, you know, okay, LA, but I could have been sitting in North Belfast, it really didn't matter. I was sitting behind a computer, it was LA was no other relevance to them. They did where I was really didn't make any difference. I just used that as a selling tool. Yeah. Um. So just, just to build a mind, and we started getting people, and eventually you build relationships with people, and those people move around. Next, you know, one moment you're dealing with a press director at Man City, now he's going to Spurs, and you're getting into even Spurs players, you're getting into this, and just like that. And for me, like you were saying, I'm a big United fan, so that was my goal was I want to get in this football club, right? And at the time, David Gill was running and frozen. And, and, and I guessed David Gill's email through the format of Unity, right? And I thought, there's no way it's this easy. There's no way I'm going to be able to email David Gill, David.gill at Man United, and they're going to, and it's going to get through, but it did. And <laughs> I've used that trick me. Man time. <laughs> oh, he responded to me. And, um, it wasn't particularly pleasant, like uh, but nonetheless, just started about that long, right? And um, maybe four to five emails i would ignore. <laughs> um, he was my best friend, I don't think I was his, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, I, I would just persevere and eventually they started giving me wee crumbs. Uh, at the time, the communications director was a guy called Phil Townsend, who is now head of UEFA communications director. That's really and, him and I developed a really like we we talk probably two three times a week on WhatsApp, and uh, we developed a really 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 close relationship. Now that's a man I learned a lot from professionally yeah. because one of the things I learned from Phil T was you never put anything in writing. You aren't okay with put with seeing it in the front page in the New York Times. So Phil, I could have a conversation with Phil on the phone. And he would tell me something completely different than what he put in writing, and I yep. learned a lot from him. And he gave me access. We became really good friends. He helped mentor, mentored me a bit on certain things. Don't do this. Don't say that. Don't do it. I learned a lot from him on how to do this right. And uh, he got re- he when he left a couple of years ago he was replaced by a guy called Charlie Brooks. And I'm honestly my uh, privileged to say that Charlie's a very good friend of mine. And I talk to Charlie probably three, four times a week. And Manchester United are truly unbelievably good to me, despite the fact that I'm a massive vocal critic of the Glazers, and and I know that I will not be used um, as an outlet if they're good to me. You know, but if a pro quo, I'll, I'll give them good coverage. It doesn't work like that, you know. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I, we don't always agree on everything. They they argue with me sometimes. That's part of life, but. um but they've given me unbelievable access. They give me interviews with the biggest people at the football club. They're kind to me. They're good to me. I'm very fortunate to enjoy that relationship. It provokes a lot of jealousy. I, I occasionally get sent stuff from United, from other people. that contact them, people who claim to be a friend of mine, by the way. And are asking me to go on their podcast and what have you. Complaining to United that I get access and, you know, saying things that aren't very nice. That's the business. You have to accept that. Yeah. So, so, Mike, I'm proud of it. You know, it's... it's. I've got into boxing lucky enough. Like I got really accepted. You know, one of my closest friends in the whole world is Carl Frampton. And that man has done more for me mentally, truthfully, Mike. When I talk about mental health, warriors, um, what Carl Frampton has done for me that has never actually made the press is unbelievable. That man is my hero. Like, I am a bit old for heroes. I actually have a, a tattoo of him on my back. And it's a bit sad. Um you know, grown man getting grown man but I just even if he never thought what he has done for me personally, I I I can never even I could take I could sit here for hours and he'd never believe me. Yeah. And it it, it it
0: was it was great to have someone like that sort of behind the scenes and, and you know, sort of watching cards and interviews and, and, and the way he talks, he's an extremely humble and I don't think as you mentioned stuff like that, he's probably helped Numerous people, probably. Oh, I know of people, for a fact and that, he has. and that'll never come out. That and and then
1: he never wanted to come out. And oh, he no. never and never want to promote it. Mac, I know people personally that he's done it for. He never talk about. Look, just to, to give you a quick story on this, right? I went to watch his Leo Santa Cruz One fight in New York. Now at this stage, occasionally we were swapping direct messages on on um Twitter, but he didn't know who I was really, and really had very little interest. Now I grew up. He grew up about a mile away from me, right? So we had a lot of we had we knew a lot of the same people. Um but anyway, I always I, I loved them. Like first of all, you know it's like, you get someone from home, right? We're coming coming from Belfast, we're used to supporting other countries' athletes, because you know, it's just the way it is. You know, I work from a small place, you know, so the best player in the world is usually Argentinian or Brazilian or something. We more every once in a while we get one of our own. And it means so much to you because it's metaphorical of your own life you see young kids from north belfast up or taking on the world it 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 inspires you inspires you in in a lot of ways because you know it's like that that's that's us on the world stage you know uh like i i went to his fight that day and i'm a massive boxing fan and i remember 27 of 28 journalists said he would lose now, Carl had a lot of respect, but Santa Cruz was considered a, phenom- a phenomenal f- fighter. I'd been to a bunch of his fights before that. And to be honest, I desperately wanted Carl to win, but I didn't think he would. Uh, now, I thought it'd be close, but I, I just thought Santa Cruz was nicked. And I remember being in that arena when it's still even emotional for me today, didn't win the rally that he won. <clears throat> I sat in that arena, mate, I didn't see like everyone else. I cried my eyes out. Yeah. Because it was like a big emotional release. And for the first time in a long time, I felt happiness and pride. And uh, it was very important to me in my own life. <clears throat> and then it was after the second thing, we started to get to know each other a bit more. But one day I was sitting there, I was sitting in the house. I was at a very, very, very low point. Very low point, one number worse. And I, we had swapped messages on direct, on Twitter, but the day before. And you know why when someone messages you on WhatsApp, it shows you their name, their contact name. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have a card's number on my phone, so I didn't. And it popped up, called Frampton. And, and I'm not joking, I nearly filled out the material. I couldn't, I said, they called Frampton messaging me. And I opened it. It was this big, long message about i'm here for you i'll always be here for you I, I i i can't even get through it and i'm telling you mate see since then he kept every promise he made to me every promise and i don't care if it's two in the morning he rings me back 10 minutes later it doesn't matter when it is what it is and what he he's taking me everywhere is faint vegas you know like ringside track suits whatever it is i want Seeing with my kids, everything, that lad has done more for me than I can ever describe and I, he's, he, he's a god to me, I just idolise him and we are so lucky to have him from our city. You know, just a quick other story, I I, I, I was sitting, getting stoned one day with Mike Tyson. <laughs> I spent, spent the day with Mike Tyson and Mike Tyson probably spent two hours talking about car as soon as he heard my accent. And uh, that gives you an idea of the type of clout that he has.
0: Uh, Aye. And, res- and, and the respect and, and the, and the uh-huh. fear he's held in, yeah. And, and, and bri- brilliant insight, filling brilliant stories. And, uh, you know, that work he's doing behind the scenes, which mm-hmm. b- b- will, in the most part, go unnoticed. I think that, I think that's what makes the man. And you can hear it when he talks on TV, how uh-huh. humble he is. He's, he's never forgot his roots. Um, even when he made it to the, the two-time world champion and he was travelling all around the world, he was very grounded when he was talking and he always always had a lot of time for people from Belfast and, and his fan base. But that's the way we expect
1: us all to be, man. You know, like, one of the things I love about from home, right? See if I come home, doesn't matter whether I'm skint or loaded. They expect the same. You're, see if you're going to get too big for yourself and think you're better than people here. right? No one wants to know you. No one wants that big time, Charlie. No one likes that. See, me, I, I wouldn't change. Like, I, one thing I would never change about my life is where I come from. I am so grateful every day that I come from where I come from, because see the people. I'm like, you see, if one of their owners struggling, they look after you. They, they they'll rally around you. to protect you. To take care of you. They, take ownership of you. they are you're more than just a person. You're almost an extension of them. It, yeah. There's no doubt about it. Coming from Belfast has afforded me unbelievable privilege. Like if Carl was an American fighter, I'd never even get close to him. Never. Yeah. Right? Um Michael Conlon is another very, very close friend of mine. I love Michael. Very, very you know, I've not that Michael when he was out here. I've clung false park of his face. Again, I wouldn't have anywhere near Michael if it wasn't from Belfast. And just tons of things that are, that happened like that were you know, one of my good friends out here is a guy called Timmy McEntee from Derry, Timmy McEntee started uh, Celtic Thunder all by himself, right? A good looking lad, brilliant singer, half a million followers on Twitter, superstar out author. We're good mates. Why? Because of where we're from. Yeah. You know, like I, I live a weird life right here. Like my friends are a bit different. Well, my other really, really close friend out here is an English lad. And he's a porn star. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very famous porn star right, right? <laughs> and uh he is he's actually a very gypsy descent uh but um honestly he uh uh, uh uh an angel amongst men, right one of the kindest beautiful loving human beings generous authentic spiritual you know it's really funny just to give you a quick example of, uh, of the difference between reality and and um fantasy. <clears throat> You know that he doesn't, well, absolutely will not send sex messages to girls. Doesn't right. send, tech, doesn't send dick pics, doesn't send sex. And I said I him. I said, why not? And he goes, Jesus, man, I've got too much respect for women. I wouldn't do that. I'm not going to degrade a girl like that. I my He goes, this is fake. That's not real. That's not, that is, that is theater. You know what I came out there? It's not how I treat women, and, it, and I actually had him sit down with my son. You know because, Mac, when we were learning about women and learning about sex, most of us learned it through dirty magazines or found the bush, right? Yeah. And past them to our mates. Well, these kids are learning from the internet, and they're seeing every explicit thing you can imagine, and they're they're not old enough to realize that this is not real life. Like I I've seen some of the messages on my kids' phone from girls and. It, petrifies me. Well, I had Donny sit him down and talk to him and say, in son, listen. This is not real life. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this." Him and I, you know, he's just a very we're very close mates. And uh, funny enough, his other best mate is is from the Falls. Uh, Sean McCarthy uh, lives out here too. Uh, but honestly, I'm very lucky um, and uh, I have great support. Now I am very very Influential big people around me that care about me, and because of my career over the last 10 years, I've developed close friendships with high profile people. If you like, you know, there are either current athletes, retired athletes, you know, owners of football clubs, you know, current boxers, retired boxers, you know, people that are public figures. You know, I'm yeah. very, very lucky because. They are very good to me.
0: It, it's, it, I, I'm so pleased to hear you've got a bit of a, a bit of a support network around you, Phil. Both on both sides at landing, which is brilliant. Now I know you're, I know you're short of pressed for time, so. No, I've you're all
1: right, couple... I'm, I'm okay. Man, see, just, just on that, I want, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you because it's a really important point. As much as I love the support I have around me out here and the great people on the mm-hmm. the support that means the most to me, in the whole world. It's the people from home. Yeah. And I get a direct message from somebody I don't even know them. And I this happens a lot from people from Belfast or whatever, saying things like, "Hey, mate, uh, I didn't know you when you lived here. I'm 23 or 24 or whatever. Oh, listening to your content. I think it's first class. I think it's brilliant. Great to see, you know, one of our own out there. I'm going to start my own podcast. You know, And uh, to me, to be inspiring the young kids from home, Jesus Christ, that to be on my wildest imagination, and to see these kids, some of them are struggling, some of them are older, some of them are right, some of them it, it, like that to me means so much to me because they're like coming from Belfast, that's my identity. Like right? I see being out here, I'm not a man, I'm not i I'm Irish, right? yeah, I'm a constant ambassador for where we come from, and our city, and our country. And to me, there is nothing that I am prouder of in my life than our we than our we city, right? Because we've all, like yourself, man, and many others less than this, many others don't you know, our, our generation, I've had to deal with a lot in life, right? And and it really isn't until you get older and you see how you live and the choices that you make that you realize how profound that effect is, because most people are oh, have the trouble with the fact you. I don't, I didn't see someone being murdered. So, no, no, that's not true, right? Yeah. It, it affects you in every decision that you make. It affects your self worth. It affects your self esteem. Because here's a lot of shame from because a lot of us, when we grew up, we didn't have anything, right? Yeah. We we'll had the bare minimum of basics, right? We all remember what it was like when you're making home, you had chip buddies that were, you know, fifth gear or something. You're scundered and all that, there, right? But we all had that, right? <laughs> we all, all felt cat and all that, there, right? We're, you know, <laughs> Clues from Smithfield, I was part of life. But one other thing, some kids are more resilient than others. Some kids can deal with it. But for me, when I was a kid dealing with that, I was ashamed. I felt inadequate. I felt like all the other kids around me, they had nice football boots not there (laughs) where I was just this wee peasant. I felt like I'm an imposter. I don't belong here. And that has carried stay with me throughout my life. When I'm around opulence, I'm around people of success, I am really uncomfortable. I feel like I don't belong here. Now you put me in a, you know, working class home with a bunch of ordinary people that don't, I feel okay in there because I don't feel threatened. I don't feel like, I but my, it's just, it's, it's a problem because it prohibits success. It, it, it programs negative thinking. It programs you to expect disappointment rather than expect success. And and it, it so it has a long effect on you, way in their adult life, even if you don't know it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. with every a lot of things you say, there, Phil. You were bring you were you were bringing me back when you said the chip buddies. I I uh-huh. I, re, I remember going out one day, and I think, <laughs> I think it I think it started working sort of part time on my uncle. And uh, the mum says to me, you're, you're working, so you can you can afford to buy your own clothes and uh, stuff. So, so, what I did was, I, uh, I went out and bought a load of clobber, and uh, it was Christmas Eve and didn't didn't buy the shoes. And my shoes, my trainers at that time had a big hole in them. I put a bear mat in, in, in the bottom of the, of the sole. Uh, and I said, During Christmas Eve, I've got all these clothes. And I says, I'm just waiting to new band the trainers. She says, I'm not band the trainers. So, I landed out on Christmas Day. Full, full fashion from head to toe, and these trainers with two beer mats in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if,
1: that, if that's not if, that, if that's not Belfast metaphorically, <laughs> nothing is. You look a great from the ground from the ground up, but see, see the foundations. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. At the end of the day, you see out here, you have varying degrees of privilege, right? Where you can go into a classroom. And you can have a kid where whose parents are multi-millionaires and you can have a kid whose parents are barely male one thing about home is we were largely more or less the same social group more or less right there wasn't any billionaires in our school or millionaires but there was people with more than others of course and, and, and it didn't take a massive contrast to feel you know uh to feel like um I say worthless, but certainly for the factor of self-esteem. So you know, the vast majority of us were dealing with, you know, the the, the consequences of all, not just a level of poverty. And also, do you know what I mean? So uh, there's no shame me. And at the end of the day, you come from a lovely stock of people that we are humble. We aren't walking over the top of each other, cutting each other's throat. You know, yes, there is elements that in society there always will be, but the vast majority of us, you know, um we we realize we were all we're all more SCM and uh I I tell you Meg I've when have had difficulties in life and I've looked for consistency and I've looked for trust and I've looked for people where I believe what's coming out of their mouth, it's always from come from home. Always Yeah.
0: Now you you mentioned an interesting thing there about obviously the 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 athletes and the retired athletes and and the personalities that you've been able to meet and and people that you would call friends. Now, who's who's the most memorable person that you've that you've sat down and, and interviewed? Who who's who's made you starstruck? Have you been starstruck? And who's that? Who was that?
1: Um, he had a couple of interviews where I found you. Uh, you know. You, I would say my favorite was Tyson, Mike Tyson. Um, yeah. I spent the day with Mike Tyson. I um, down there, got stung with him. I would we <laughs> like uh, Yes. And um, we watched the fight together. It was Errol Spence and Sean Porter, I think it was. Um, that was an unbelievable experience for me to be able to sit alone with Mike Tyson for hours, watch boxing, Stone, and one of the things that was profound about that, Mike. Like, Mike Tyson, it does not fit the caricature of what people paint him to be as this vicious animal. Mike Tyson and I respect the fact that lots of people haven't forgiven him for his past, that's up to each and every one of us to decide if a human being is redeemable or not, and if so, that's it's up to you. Uh, he had we, we, we I, I mentioned to him about Alan Watts. And I said, you know what, I, I had a deep struggle with grief and I had found a lot of comfort in Alamad. And I swear to God, see when I said it, the look on his face, he turned immediately and looked at me and said, You know who Alamad is? I said, Just do. Listen to his podcast, let to this lectures. And said, It is, it is a niche audience, there's no doubt. And he said to me, that's all I listened to all day. I've never once run into anyone else that I even knows who he is and uh, we connected on that see he he's his four-year-old daughter died when she wrapped a cord a blank cord around her neck when she was on a treadmill and uh he is he has dealt been struggling with that a bit i've won that a bit i had trouble with you for, for forever and we talked about i want to i would encourage anyone who's struggling with mental health listen to him you'll find his clip his clips on youtube um and uh he's a philosopher he's dead now um, used to be an Anglican priest, uh, got into Zen Buddhism, and really does a magnificent job of framing mental health thoughts, negative thoughts, and really giving you a wonderful metaphorical description of life. You know, I'll just summarize it quickly. You know, one of the things he talks about is when we're kids, when we're born, it's always carrot and stick. You know, it's here, kitty, kitty. you know, go to, go to P1, go to P2, and, then, and you get ready, you go to P3, and then you, you go to secondary school, and then you, you, you're you almost done, and then you go to college or tech, and then when you have to out there, you get a job, and you're almost done, and you get a job, and you have to get a, a quota, and you have to meet that quota, and then you put in your... It's like you're always just around the corner from happiness and contentment and getting that thing that you've been programmed since you were a child, to to pursue as if there's something there, as if that you know if you look at how we're educated, we're really educated to be obedient, right? Yeah. And so um, what what we're told is and drilled into is that the only definition of success is a good paying job with status, which is a big reason why we have such ubiquitous mental illness, right? Because that's not the case. Instead of encouraging kids to creative endeavours, see we've, we've taken all that out, right? Uh, we basically sit down, repeat. If I read, if I've never been to Paris and I read a book about Paris, have I learned anything? I would say no, because unless you know what it's like to experience Paris, you have, there's a massive difference between an intellectual understanding and an experiential understanding. And human beings don't learn until they experience because we see if human beings learn from books, drink driving would have stopped oh, oh, 80 years ago. Everybody knows it's wrong. So yep. Most people don't stop it until they have a negative experience of it or something that is correctional, right? I, I Like our judicial system is based on punitive measures, not rehabilitative members methods, which is why the recidivism rates are terrible maybe it satisfies some lust inside of us for vengeance um but it does nothing to help society or uh, to help people become rehabilitated uh, and it's unconscionable that we criminalize drug addiction which is just uh, truly unconscionable that that happens uh when in reality it's a mantle it's a it's a health issue but um sorry to, to get off track um, anyway you know uh, it, it, for me um uh, it um our educational system is a problem because it doesn't teach each and every one of us. If you take a look at male juvenile suicide, it's awful, right? You take a look all the way through school. Boys' graduation rates are terrible, right? And I'm not. I don't want to get into genders because both genders have male, female, whatever, or whatever gender you identify with has your unique problems. But boys are treated as defective. Girls in schools, um, hence why the ADD, ADHD rates, ratio rates are disgraceful. Hence why. Um, most gold standard behavior in classroom is a is female because most teachers are female. Um, and any attempt to, um, mas- any, 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 any masculine trait that is considered toxic, which is a disgrace. Uh, so you have this huge issue with young boys who don't go on to further education, who feel completely disillusioned Of course, what happens with women too, but for different reasons. So it's also unconscionable to me that our education system has not mandated mindfulness or some form of mental health uh, education when we look at how sick our society is. And when we train, you're not training a a human being to go out into the world and be successful if you are not paying attention to the mind. So I think our education has a lot to answer for very disappointing, and you know we're still arguing about whether Catholics and Protestants should go to school, which is truly unbelievable to me when in reality the whole curriculum needs to be seriously looked at.
0: Yeah, yeah I agree with you. I mean, that's, you only need to look at the the increase in, in, in medication and trend to numb pain for people that are experiencing anxiety and depression. Not not only from a from an ANI perspective, but globally, Phil. Um, yes. This year's a massive re-education required from local schooling right up, I think you mentioned our mindfulness and meditation. There's some schools that I know have started to break the mould and, and bring people in and, and, and do that as part of a practice and not around sort of mental health awareness week when, you know, most schools and activism and hashtags and, and, and social will drive the agenda. They're actually doing it sort of as, as a practice. Um, I, I know a couple of particular have set up and stuff around young people and wellbeing and, and, and uh, mindfulness and, and yeah meditation which is which is greatly welcome but not enough um, nowhere near enough now I know you're uh, you've got you've, you've got a lunch meeting um,
1: I've got to run here Mick but I'll tell you what mate. I'm happy to, do, happy to follow up and do the game eh? so just want to let me know when it works if you want me back I'm happy to do it for you, big man right, uh, thanks for having me on yes I've one, I've one question before you
0: go yeah, and I think boy, all, you, all the United men will sort of be it will be uh, <laughs> pinning on your answer We've obviously brought in um, two two players that have, have added some real quality to the squad. Do you think that's going to make a difference in, in where we finish this season? Or are we still one or two off?
1: Uh, I had, I had Danny Higginbotham on my, on the show yesterday, and we were talking about uh, what Varane and Sansalbray it What you know will probably look like tactically next season, and what's realistic to expect from SoSco next season. Um, I still feel you needed are missing defensive midfielder i think when you look at the euros for example you know, two best midfielders fernandez and pogba if you looked at the portugal germany game fernandez was dropped after that game right for uh Paulinho. and i think there's a feeling that he leaves you exposed defensively you know then that's uh, and pogba was you were getting the best of the Pogba with kante in behind him so i still feel that united you know, need a proper world-class defensive midfielder. The problem is, or the question is, I suppose, does it change, has it changed what they want now that they have Varian? Because last season, we're looking at people like Thiago. Now, that's a defensive Jorginho-type midfielder where he's basically a link player, not the old-fashioned defensive midfielder in the content mode. It's going to be no-nonsense, you know, break-up play, start attacks, you know, a bit different. So... Uh, Veron is a ball playing center back now. United have that ball playing center back, they've wanted him for a long time, and uh, I think that may mean that they change their sides on the defensive midfield. But from what I'm being told, mid um, the United a third player will be difficult budgetary wise, um, without one or two moving on. So I expect that United will focus on that. If they're confident they've got a one, one or two players sold, even if they haven't announced it, then you could see them going for a third. But uh, Camavinga was someone they liked. I said a month ago that it was largely agent talk, but they like him. Uh, same with Sol. So, old Niguez, they like him uh, on the scouting list. Nowhere near being a deal. So, I think uh, they'll look at the Pogba, Andres, Lingard situation. If Pog believes, maybe Lingard will say, You know what? I'm gonna stay because now I can see a a place for me.
0: Yeah, listen, buddy. I'm sure we could. Uh, I'm sure we could talk about all night on Man United. I'm sure the United yeah. men who I connect with on Twitter will be will be following you intently over the next number of weeks. It's been uh, it's <laughs> it's been great having you on. And listen, I'd, I'd love do, to do I'd love to do it again with you. As I say, I think there's a mini series in there with some of the stuff you've experienced. And and thanks for.
1: Thanks for coming on, buddy. Nick, you have a number. You reach out to me anytime. And much love to all the people out there. It's less than this. If you're struggling or you have someone, in your family is struggling, you're not alone. Um, loads of people out there going through difficult things. Uh, so please don't be hard on yourself thinking that uh, there's something wrong with you. There's not. Uh, there's really something wrong with our society. Um, and it's not you. So uh, please, you're not alone. And uh, I wish you nothing but love and support. Uh, Mike, thanks for
0: having me on, It Same to you, Phil, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.
1: You're a big man, All best, Mick.
0: Bye. One of the most powerful, hard-hitting, and emotive testimonies I've ever listened to. You can find Phil on Beyond the Pitch on both Instagram and Twitter. I look forward to seeing you all on episode 3 and remember keep it real